Let me begin by saying this. The Sermon on the Mount recorded in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Three wonderful chapters is no doubt one of the greatest, if not the most profound sermon ever preached. Why? Because it is preached by the greatest person who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet there's another great sermon that our Lord preached. One sermon was the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know exactly which mountain it was when Jesus sat down to preach there. I looked it up and it just says a mountain range. It was probably stretched to the north of Capernaum that Jesus had spent. It was the mountain in which Jesus spent all night in prayer for wisdom from His Father as He prayed to choose before He chose the twelve disciples. That's significant, isn't it? Actually, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says it like this. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up to the mountain, the hill. It's these hills that are very significant. And after He sat down, He sat down. His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and began to teach them. And then it goes into the sermon. The King and the Kingdom. The other great sermon that's recorded in Scripture by our Lord Jesus Christ was preached on another hill which is called Calvary. Golgotha. And I would say that this sermon is just as powerful or even more powerful than the Sermon on the Mount. Dying between two thieves and two criminals on a wooden cross. Now why I say what I said. The Sermon on the Mount was a perfect sermon and a perfect exposition of the law of God, really, if you look at it. Perfect exposition. masterfully done by the Lord, the Master Himself, speaking about the kingdom of God, preached by the King Himself, the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on Mount Calvary was a sermon that was really on the profound, infinite love of God. This sermon was given in flesh and blood in His final hours. And as they wrote above the cross, it was preached by the King of the Jews. Here on Calvary's cross, there are recorded from Scripture only seven. Seven, I think, is wonderful. It's significant too because seven is a number of completion. Seven brief sayings from the Savior who died on Mount Calvary. And as our Lord dies in shame, He remains in sovereign control of His own death. And each of these sayings of Jesus from the cross is extremely, and should I say immensely rich, with eternal significance. They are profound. There is no way we're going to be able to exhaust everything here. We can preach each saying and take a series on it and still not plumb the depths of it 
I'm sure of that. But this wonderful sermon that Jesus preached as He died on the cross from the seven sayings that He spoke, His last words demonstrate to us that Jesus was completely consistent in His life and message until the very end. John 13.1 says this, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had once, I'm sorry, had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved them to the end. I love that verse. And now, as we go to the cross, may we, as John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Paul the Apostle says, Christ our Passover. And may we do this as we hear by the blessed Holy Spirit the seven last sayings from Jesus on the cross. And you can follow with, follow with me because these are selected scriptures. We I do not have just a section of scripture. We're going to be looking at different uh, accounts. The first saying from the cross was a plea for mercy. It was a plea for mercy and it was a prayer on behalf of those who crucified our Lord and tormented Him. If Jesus preached on the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, and He did, Jesus the Master demonstrated loving His enemies as they crucified Him on the cross. Luke, the beloved physician, records that shortly after the cross was raised, on the hill called Golgotha, while the soldiers were still gambling for his clothes, he prayed to his Father for their forgiveness. This is love that's beyond us, beloved. This is love that Jesus taught His disciples, but is love the Master demonstrated. Scripture says in Luke chapter 23, and you can go with me there please, Luke 23, verse 33, as Jesus is dying, and when they, and it says this in verse, um, I believe it's 33, isn't it? Verse 33, I'm sorry if I said 23, but it's verse... uh, 33, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, the place of a skull, where they crucified him. And the malefactors means the criminals, the criminals on the right, on, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And verse 34 says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Scripture says, as they parted His raiment and cast lots. You know, these words of mercy is a prayer of our Lord spoken probably while He was actually being nailed to the cross. Or as soon as the cross, they took the cross, the, the, the centurion soldiers would take the cross after they nailed the person there and they would rear up the cross, throw it up, on its end and drop it into a huge socket. And flesh 
would rip, as horrible as that is. But that was the crucifixion from the Romans of that time period. It's worthy to note that as soon as the, as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. The great prayer that Jesus prays from the cross is a priestly prayer, a plea for mercy for those who unjustly crucified Him. You know, most men would, being crucified on a cross, would cry out threatenings. They would lash back with anger and curse. But our Lord responded in the very opposite way. Instead of threatening back, instead of lashing back and calling down judgment of God upon them, He prays for them. He pleads for God to forgive them for such an unjust act. He could have been right in doing that. Think of that. Jesus could have prayed down the judgment of God, but He chose not to. He chose to pray for forgiveness. He prayed that God the Father would forgive them for their unjust act of taking His precious life. Remember, He's not the judge yet here. He will be one day when He strikes down the nations and when He comes in great power and glory. But here He dies as the Savior. He's the Savior. He died, as Paul said, the just for the unjust. Matthew records and says, And thou shalt call His name Jesus. That word Jesus is Joshua in a sense, Savior. And He's a Savior. He comes to save, for He shall save His people from their sins. This was His great mission. This is why He came. To save sinners. To save us. To save you and me from our sins. And the great high priest pleads for mercy. Isn't this beautiful? He pleads for such compassion and mercy upon His tormentors, upon those that are taking His life in a horrible way. Beloved, at the cross where we see and behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is where we must see and we see the greatest mercy ever demonstrated to mankind, to the unjust, wicked sinner. Here is where we see God's mercy in full glory. Isaiah 53.12 says this, the prophet, and it is actually, this verse is fulfilled at the cross at this time. Isaiah says, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bared the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. There it is. He made intercession for the transgressors. He is the great high priest praying 
and pleading for mercy for those tormentors in which crucified Him upon a cruel, rugged cross called Calvary, Golgotha. Think of it, for the whole and complete meaning of the cross is summed up in this great intercession on the cross. The meaning of the cross is right here. The forgiveness of sins. Pleading. This is the way our God is. He is a forgiving God, slow to anger. And Jesus pleads for mercy. Right here in my notes. Brother Keith didn't know this again. This is the Spirit of God. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then verse 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. We must remember this when we preach the Gospel and tell the Gospel to lost and dying sinners. Jesus comes as a Savior. Oh, we were to warn them and, and that yes, God commands all men to repent everywhere. They are, it's repentance and faith, repentance and believing. And we should show them the law of God and lead them to the cross. But we must never ever forget the heart of the gospel is that God desires to cleanse their hearts from sin and give them a new heart to love Him. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The Apostle Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. So much is given to those who believe. And which then he says, which none of the princes of this world knew it. They did not know it. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So you see the sovereignty of God in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Jesus prayed that they are to be forgiven. He pleads with the Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They were blind to what they're doing. Yes, they were murdering the Son of the living God, the Son of Man, the God-Man, Jesus Christ. But at the same time, Jesus willingly gave up His life. He said, no man takes my life. I willingly lay it down of myself. He had that authority. So in that sense, it is God that is sovereignly in control. So how was this, an- this, this prayer answered? How was this prayer answered? Isn't this beautiful? It leads right to the thief on the cross. It was answered immediately in the salvation who was forgiven while hanging on the cross between two thieves. And J.C. Ryle calls this the Christ's greatest trophy. The second saying, this leads to the second saying that Jesus utters from the cross, marks the first glorious fulfillment for the answer to His prayer for the forgiveness of those who participated in His death. As hours of agony passed on At the cross, two thieves were crucified, as you know the story. Go with me there and look at Luke 23. You read it on down. Luke records a great deal of this in verse 39 through 43. Verse 39 through 43. And one of the male the criminals, which were hanged, railed on him, casting accusations on him. 
saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Doest not thou fear God, seeing thou art in same condemnation? He says, We, and this is, this is important to get this, because he recognized he was a sinner, folks. Listen. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. He was pronouncing him as the sinless. In verse 42, And he said unto Jesus, Lord. That's key. He, he called him Lord, and he, knew, he really meant him as Lord too. He was just not a mere man. It was the sovereignty of God that was doing this upon this thief. The Spirit of the living God was doing a work upon this man. He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt thou be with me in paradise. Oh, think of that, beloved. Our Lord Jesus prayed for forgiveness to God the Father. And then the Lord of heaven and earth, His Father answers that wonderful prayer and brings a convicted thief, a criminal, to salvation. Right after Jesus prays that. This is justification by faith alone. I want you to think of this for a second. This is really glorious. Pastor John MacArthur says this in his commentary. No sinner was ever given more explicit assurance of salvation than to hear it from the mouth of Jesus. No sinner had less opportunity to gain salvation by any works. He couldn't have done any. He couldn't have completed a single religious ceremony. He couldn't have engaged in a single good deed. End quote. He could not even go to the waters of baptism, folks. This man was saved by grace alone. He was justified by grace alone. Isn't this wonderful? This is the gospel. Jesus reaches out, prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And this man here responds as to rebuking the other thief and saying, don't you fear God? The Spirit of God was moving upon this man. And he recognized he was a sinner by saying, we indeed justly, we res-, in other words, what he's saying, we deserve this. We deserve the death. But Jesus doesn't. He recognized that Christ, who he really was. And then he calls him Lord. Now he just doesn't say that from his lips. He's meaning it in his heart. And this is so wonderful. So really, faith is all that the Lord asked for, not works. The just shall live by faith. But this man didn't have much more living to do here. He had just maybe a couple hours. But within those couple hours, he was marvelously, wonderfully saved. And Jesus said, Verily, truly, I say unto thee, Today, today, Shalt thou be with me in paradise? Now, how would you like to be in the place of that convicted criminal? Knowing that the words of Jesus Himself and Jesus would speak to you and saying, today you're going to be with me in paradise. I'm telling you, that melts my heart. That warms my heart. 
All the Lord requires is simple childlike faith and this is all this thief had. He had childlike faith. This criminal embraced Jesus as Lord. He confessed him as a at he confessed himself as a unworthy sinner. Confessed Christ as the perfect king. And he knew that there's a kingdom. His request was a desperate plea for mercy. I love this because he knew he didn't deserve it. He was like that publican Jesus spoke of, of the sinner beating his chest, who wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven for fear that God might look on his face and he would be consumed for his sin. And the, and the publican cries out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said that man went home justified. The words of Jesus to this dying thief given to him before death itself gives him the assurance and promise of complete forgiveness and entrance into heaven based upon nothing he had done, based upon no merit he has done but only upon his desperate plea to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Lord. Jesus was indeed Lord, right? And He is Lord. Amazingly, to think that the King of glory, the Savior beside this thief, was bearing the very judgment of God for that thief's sin right beside Him. That's another great thought, isn't it? Here's Jesus taking the full wrath of God, the full punishment of God's anger against sin, His sin. And yet, the thief confesses of his unworthiness that he's a sinner. Jesus' perfection as a king and Lord. And then, at that moment, Jesus' perfect righteousness is transferred to the thief whose sin had been transferred to him. Today, they're together in paradise worshiping. And they were wonderful. Salvation had come to a criminal. Justification by faith alone. Isn't this glorious? If you really think of it, we're so undeserving of this. And it causes me to tremble, but it warms my heart. William Cowper said it, And I say Cooper, I'm sorry, that's really the right pronunciation. But William Cooper said it this way on that wonderful hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. In the second stanza, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Praise God. This leads us to the third saying. And I pray I get through this because this is really melting my heart as I'm speaking this to you. The third saying of Jesus from from the cross was a word of compassion. A word of compassion. You had a word of a prayer of forgiveness. You had a um, the prayer of forgiveness. And then um Then a word of reconciliation. Now you have a word of compassion recorded in the Gospel of John. You can go to John 19. Let's go to John 19, verse 25 through 27. 
John 19. Verse 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. If I'm not mistaken, there is three Marys, and I believe there was another there, if you read the record, but we definitely know there was three Marys there. Verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother. And the disciples standing by him whom he, he loved. That's John. He saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. You know, it must have been extremely painful watching Jesus die for his loved ones. But the mother of Jesus, no doubt, it was much more of a painful, agonizing experience. And why I say that? Because if you go to Luke, go to Luke, go with me very quickly to Luke chapter 2. There was a prophecy given by a man, an elderly man by the name of Simeon. This is a prophecy that she didn't understand at this time. But I'm sure it flashed to her at the moment when Jesus was on the cross and she was painfully watching Him die. This was the Holy Spirit of God that was upon this elderly man. Chapter 2, verse 25. Let's look at 25 to 35. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. This is a prophecy. And we could thank God. It was the Spirit of God that does this. He just doesn't think this up, does he? And there's no way a mortal man can think something up like this. And it was revealed, notice that, it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms. Can't imagine being an elderly man doing this. Recognizing this by the Spirit of God. And he blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou, thou servant, depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them. And he said unto Mary his mother, now listen to this. This is a prophecy that Mary will experience at the cross. Behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And I'll stop right there. But here, it was at the cross of Jesus as Mary stood beneath the cross 
And he, she gazes upon Jesus, the sword that Simeon spoke of, that was promised in that prophecy so long ago, now pierced through her heart. As they pierced the Son of the living God, her heart was being pierced. Yet while hanging on the cross, suffering in anguish, don't you think of this, excruciating pain, under the weight of the judgment of Almighty God, the sinless one, the, Jesus selflessly turns aside to care for the earthly needs of His mother. This is incredible and amazing to marvel here Jesus prays for His tormentors. He tells the thief that He's going to be with them today in paradise. He forgives them. Now Jesus turns to Mary, His mother, and is thinking not about himself, he's thinking of her. She stands and gazes at him at the foot of the cross, those whom he felt responsible. And notice he said to her, now this, I, I don't have time to really unpack all this, but I'll touch on it. He said to her, woman. That's interesting, isn't it? Because he says the same thing at the marriage feast in Canaan. At the first miracle where he, he turned the water into wine, he calls her woman. You know, there's nowhere in Scripture it's ever recorded that Jesus called Mary mother. It's not in Scripture. It's interesting. Even though she was His earthly mother, we know that, He never called her mother. Now, is it because He showed disrespect? By no means. By no means. God forbid. He always called her woman. And this is why. It was was as if Jesus was underscoring the fact that he was to marry much more than just a son. It's like a relationship between a mother and son, but between, but it was it was like a more a relationship between a sinner and a savior. Because Mary needed a savior just like me and you. Now, Fee would understand this. Preach this to Catholics and they'll look at you crazy. Because they lift her up to the point of worship. Oh, Jesus is right up there too. And all the great saints, they have all these saints they worship, but they worship mother as the mother of God. But Mary was a... as de, and, and, and this is my point. Mary was just as dependent on the divine grace as the thief was dependent on the cross was. Even though she was blessed among all women, yes, she was blessed, and she was a noble, godly, young Hebrew woman, she needed forgiveness just like the thief needed forgiveness. And like you and I needed forgiveness. So by Jesus saying what He did in this text, by doing this, He was entrusting the care of His mother to John the Apostle. Basically, He turned to John and says, you take care of her. That's what He was basically saying. And there's something else here that we don't need to, to miss. The law also, the law of God required the firstborn son to take care of his parents. And Jesus was obeying the law here passively to the letter. He fulfilled the law, right? He fulfilled the law of God to the very end. Jesus was fulfilling the law of God even on the cross. He honored, He obeyed the law throughout His entire life 
and he honors the law while suffering in his death by saying what he said here. Let's go to the fourth saying. So much more I can say in that text, but there's more sayings we've got to get through here. The fourth saying Jesus uttered from the cross is probably the most difficult. Now we come to holy, hallowed ground. We're, at, we're already, already on holy ground, but can I say this? As we're standing on holy ground, folks, and as God told Moses to take off your sandals, and I say this, we do this within our heart attitude. Now we go unto the Holy of Holies. This next saying is really the most powerful, profound, richest of all terms of mystery and meaning out of all of them. Because of what Jesus says is beyond what our little finite minds can really conceive. The Gospel of Matthew records it for us. If you go to Matthew chapter 27, let's look at verse 45 and 46. Starting at verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. That's pretty much 3 three o'clock our time, 3 p.m., Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is a fulfillment of Psalm 22 1. As Brother Keith preached on this so wonderfully. Which the psalmist says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a fulfillment. The prophet, the Spirit of God was speaking through David at that time. What does Jesus mean by this? What does Jesus mean by this? Oh my. Why did I ask myself that question? (laughs) Beloved, can I say this without... What a question to ask. We will never be able to plumb the full depths of this. Some of the greatest theologians. Some won't touch it. G. Campbell Morgan says, I dare not even comment on this. And leave it like it is. He says, I put my hand to my mouth and I worship. I think that's a great attitude to have. But I'm going to try my best. And I'm by no means any better. I'm just a worm and the servant of the living God. But I'll do my best to present to you what I see by the Scriptures is here before us and what other commentators have said and what I've studied. It was here as Jesus cried out with a loud voice hanging on the, on the cross that He was bearing the sins of the whole world, obviously. Dying as the substitute for sinners. He was suffering the punishment of the wrath of Almighty God for all the sins of, of the whole world. That in and of itself, and of itself, is if we just sit there and contemplate it on that, is enough, right? But Jesus, as Scripture says, is the Lamb of God. It is He is God's Lamb, right? He is. This is where He is sacrificed on the altar before the Father. He takes away the sin of the world. John one. 29. This is how Jesus takes away the sin of the world. This is really the heart of the gospel. 
is this saying right here, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God literally was pouring out His divine wrath upon His Son right at this point. In that sense, He was forsaken by God. Now, beloved, let me say this. Here is where we see the hatred of sin before God Almighty. This is the awfulness of sin. This is how much God hates sin. In some mysterious way, that's not known to us. Let me say that. And it's not known to us. During those awful hours that Jesus was experiencing right here, the Father pours out His full fury, His wrath, His holy anger upon His Son. This is beyond us. And the Son feels forsaken. Here's the true meaning of the cross. This is the heart of the Gospel. This is... This is where the Spirit of God takes us, folks, right here. We see God's full fury, His wrath upon His Son. His one and only Son in whom He's well pleased. No one else pleased Him. What was happening on the cross? Well, as I'm stumbling through this, God was punishing His own beloved Son for our filthy, rotten, damnable sins. And in that sense, Christ was forsaken by God. Never had there been a separation between the Father and the Son. I put this in my own words, but I've read MacArthur on this. This is beyond us and our little finite minds for us to even grasp it. Because it's within the divine trinity, the oneness that existed eternally. And I want you to think of this. You had the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Never was there ever any separation. Was there ever an offense between the Trinity? Was there ever a split up? They were all always one. Always one. And now here on the cross, the Father forsakes the Son. Because God cannot look upon the sin. And Jesus was bearing the sin of the world. God is, and you know this, God is so holy, so just, He's furious with red-hot anger against sin. He has to judge it because He's holy. So what does He do? The Father unleashes His fury upon Christ. I don't know about you. That's a place of worship. This is a place like, Lord, help us to see this by Your Spirit. God unleashes all the forces of His divine judgment on Jesus. Let me give you some Scripture. I just chose a few, but there's so many more. It goes through all through the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a very familiar verse, but it's the Gospel in just a few words. For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. I think Isaiah 53 definitely gives us the right picture of the cross as the suffering servant. As the prophet Isaiah speaks through the Holy Spirit, 
Verse 4, five, four and 5, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet he, we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God. Smitten of God. Listen to that. And afflicted, but He was wounded for our transgressions. Our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Ours. The chastisement of then, it says, our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes, we are healed. A lot of times we think of the physical stripes, and yes, I'm not going to say not the physical stripes, but so many times we think physical here, but did you ever think about the spiritual stripes that the Father was punishing Jesus with? Because really, that's what is happening. It is the spiritual stripes in the sense that Jesus was taking the full fury of the divine wrath of God upon Him. Verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Listen to that. I could stop right there and say, Selah, look at that. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. To bruise His Son. He put Him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, And he shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That's what it's all about. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He takes the sin of the world. He takes the fury of God. He takes the wrath of God. And Jesus suffered the just for the unjust, as Paul says. He took the full weight of the divine punishment of God. And really, we don't really know how to, to understand this. We really don't. We never will. Jesus went into a, a mysterious realm of being forsaken by God. And it's hard for us to grasp this because this is the Son of the living God. This is the second person of the Trinity in flesh. Now, for the first time ever, He's separated from the Father because of your sin, my sin, the sin of the world. MacArthur says it like this, quote, one way to understand it would be like this. And he gives a small illustration. That a mortal man could spend all eternity in torments of hell and never begin to exhaust the divine wrath that was heaped on Christ in those few hours. It, was, it wasn't the physical pain, he says, of the crucifixion, dreadful as it was, that was crushing the crushing reality. It was the wrath of His Father. End quote. I thought about that. And I said, wow. A person and people that suffer into hell eternally would not even begin to even come close to what Jesus suffered here. It's incredible, isn't it? We can't understand this, folks. This is too much for us. Well, let's go to the fifth saying. The fifth saying Jesus says from the cross was simple but profound. John 19. It's recorded in John 19, verse 28. John 19, verse 28. This is the fifth saying. And it says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. Now, He just took the full wrath of God, right? This is what it's speaking of. All things were now accomplished. That the Scripture might be fulfilled, says, I thirst. That's what He said. Two words. 
He's thirsty. I think about this. He was thirsty so that you and I can drink of living water. A well that doesn't never run dry. All for our glory. All for us to have. And as the end neared, Jesus uttered His final plea here. Small physical relief, right? Two simple words. I'm going to try to keep this simple, but what do you see here? We see not just the divinity of Christ, we see His humanity. We see the God incarnate yet thirsty, totally dehydrated from the horrible experience that He was bearing the wrath of God upon Himself. Now He's exhausted, He's dehydrated uh, from the horrible experience as He was bearing this on the cross, and we need to see the true humanity of Christ, right? He's not a phantom. He's not a ghost. He's a person. He's a real person. He's really thirsty. He, he's a real man. He's the God-man dying, suffering as a man. In order to identify, identify with suffering humanity. And from this simple but profound statement, he says, I thirst. Two words, I thirst. And we observe that Jesus suffered the full physical effect of the crucifixion. Crucifixion was not easing up, for the weight of our sins was placed upon Him. Let's go to the sixth saying. The sixth saying is that Jesus from the cross was a cry of victory. Victory. A word of victory. A cry of victory. John 19, verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, He said, It is finished. Paid in full. He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. Well, simply put, paid in full. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it, made it. White as snow. The work of redemption was finished. Jesus is triumphant. It was finished. And, and, and I want you to think about that. It was finished. What does that mean? It was complete. It was paid in full. This is a cry of victory. You and I can rest in, in our assurance of salvation that there's nothing you, anybody can add to it. There's no one that can take anything from it. You can't add to it. You can't subtract to it. When Jesus says it is finished, it is finished. He secured it. Isn't that wonderful? No works of salvation, no religious ceremony, no human merit, no spiritual effort, no trying to grind our teeth and trying to be more spiritual. Yes, we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and sanctification, but when it comes to the atonement and our salvation, it's finished. Hallelujah. Nothing can be improved on it. Nothing can be taken away from the all-sufficient finished atonement of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews puts it once and for all. Once and for all. It's complete. The atoning work was complete. The provision of salvation was provided for. And it's yours and mine by the taking. By grace alone. By faith alone. Through the gift and the favor of God. Full atonement can it be. We sung it earlier. Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's all about worship. This is all about worship. Well, the seventh and last final words of Jesus on the cross was a prayer that expressed unqualified submission. Don't you love this? This is unqualified submission, but also, can I add to that, great joy. 
Jesus demonstrates to us that if we die in Christ, we could die just the same. However we die, because we're all going to die one day, right? But listen to what Jesus says on the cross. Luke 23, 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Thy hands I commend My Spirit. And having said thus, He gave up the ghost. Now I want you to think about this. Everything that had been completed and now it was time for Jesus to dismiss His Spirit. Jesus had previously made the wonderful statement that He would willingly lay down His life for His sheep. In John 10, 17-18, He says this, Therefore doeth my Father love me, because I lay down my life. I lay down my life. And I might take it again. He's in control of it. No man takes it from Him. He laid it down willingly. Isn't that great? How much He loves us. How much He loves us. You know, it's again, you hear me say this. It's, I have no doubt of God's great love toward me. My, my doubts come in as my love toward Him. I struggle with my love. I want to love Him more, but I don't love Him enough. When I look at the love that He has for me, then He says, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to take it down, lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my Father. It's a commandment. He gave it up willingly for those who He loved, for you and me. And when He finally expired on the cross here, it was not a wrenching struggle, was it? He wasn't struggling. So many times we think of death and, you know, it's the unknown to us, right? But you know, Jesus didn't struggle here because... He had a rest and a joy. There was not wrenching struggle against the nails in which crucified Him there and hung Him on the cross. He didn't die struggling in a frenzied death. I've known people to die without Jesus Christ screaming and yelling. And I guess that's a reason for that, folks. They don't have the peace that passes all understanding. And they don't have the assurance of salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ through the cross. But Jesus here in His final passage into death, like every aspect of the crucifixion was a deliberate act of His sovereign will, Jesus is in control here. John says, He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. Quietly in submission. He bowed His head. When he had finished taking the full fury of the wrath of God, he simply yielded up his holy life, his precious life. He calmly, majestically displayed it sovereignly until the end. Isn't it wonderful to know that he is in control of the death? Now, we in of ourselves can't control our death, can we? But we can be assured of this, that Jesus is with us when that time comes. And that's all that matters. Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comforts me. He's our comfort. He's our comforter. And He's with us through it. See, and we can be assured of that. To the very end, He loves His sheep to the end. Well, what does the seven sayings of Jesus in application say to us? 
Jesus made the cross. He made these sayings from the cross of Calvary a tremendous, far-reaching effect and significance for us today that believe in His name. And for they once again remind us that in His death, besides the fact of being just another fact in history, which so many people in the world looked at it as, oh yeah, Jesus died, so big deal. It's another fact in, in, his, in the history books. But it means more to the believer than that. Right? It means everything. Everything. It's life eternal. It was much, much more than that to the believer. It was it's more than just a fact. It was the supreme sacrifice that, that secured our salvation. That's what really matters. And that's all that's going to really matter when it comes right down to it. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now that's the heal to die on, folks, isn't it? Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Let me just read just a little bit of it. Verse 6, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found fashioned as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There you have it. The great humility of Jesus Himself. Paul the Apostle says, Moreover, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, Moreover, and brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory, memory, what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you the first of all, that which I also received, how that first of all, listen, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again, and the third day, according to the Scriptures. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Isn't it wonderful that we can draw strength and know that our salvation's been secured all because of Jesus Christ dying for us on Mount Calvary's cross. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank You for this amazing and glorious gift. Oh God, What Your Word has said is everything. It's not my words, God forbid. It's the words of the Savior. It's Your Word, Father, by the power of Your Holy Spirit that's been revealed to us. And we thank You for it. Thank You for the Beloved Son. Thank You for our Savior. Thank You, Lord Jesus Christ. We praise You and we thank You that we can receive this great salvation provided in Him by simple trust and childlike faith, by confessing our sin, repenting of our sin, believing in Christ. Lord, we know that's the work of You. It's not any work of us. It's all of Your work. So that we may worship You and love You and enjoy You forever. To glorify You. And Father, we thank You 
for our crucified and risen Redeemer. Thank You that we can take this time now, Lord, as we come now to the table that was instituted, this holy ordinance, this remembrance, this remembrance so that we would ever draw closer to You and never forget of the sufferings of the great sacrifice of our Lord. So Father, as we come now to take of the bread and of the cup, fill our hearts with gratitude and remembering and joy because of the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and the forgiveness that we have in Him. And we ask this in the name that's above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.